Hey everyone, welcome back to the Health Hacked Podcast. My name is Andy Kraft. And I'm Aaron Kraft. And today we're going to cover improving symptoms of MS with the ketogenic diet, using mindfulness to reduce opioid misuse, uh, polluting the air and your airways with cleaning products, uh, eradicating ovarian cancer with a drug factory, and the truth about kale for skin health. So we're going to start off with this fascinating research, at least fascinating to me because I have a wife with MS. And uh, this, this research looked at how the ketogenic diet may improve symptoms and quality of life for people with MS or multiple sclerosis for people that don't know. Mentioned on here multiple times, it's an autoimmune condition uh, impacting the brain. And uh, this came out this past week. It was not a published study yet. So that's a big disclaimer. It was some preliminary research that's going to be a pre presented at the American Academy of Neurology in April, but they, they released some results uh, and they'll discuss this in more detail. So a lot of people, I think everyone listening to this probably knows what keto is. It's a, it's a low carb, high fat, high protein diet. It's uh, It's been used actually to treat epilepsy or to improve symptoms of epilepsy and ms also impacts the brain so there's now research being done on how this may impact people with ms and what they did is they took uh, 65 people diagnosed with relapse remitting ms that's the most common form of ms what that means is that you will get flare flare up of symptoms or flare up of of the basically your immune system attacking the brain and then it will kind of remit for a bit and then it it, it comes back and so there are 65 participants and they all consumed a ketogenic diet for six months. And what that looked like was two to three keto meals a day. And that was essentially one to two servings of a low carb protein, such as eggs, fish, or meat, uh, alongside two to four tablespoons of fat, like butter or uh, oil, avocado, ghee, and then one to two cups of non-starchy vegetables, such as cucumbers, uh, cauliflower, leafy greens, so very protein fat heavy, like a keto diet. And they were only allowed to consume a maximum of 20 grams of carbs per day. And this wasn't just something where they just sent them away and say, hey, go ahead and do this. And then at the end, we'll see how you, uh, you know, how it went. They actually monitored their ketones daily through urine tests every day. And what they found is that 83% uh, of the participants adhere to the diet for the full study period, which is pretty good for a, a, an interventional diet study. So of the 65, 54 of those participants uh, complied for the full six months. They performed tests to evaluate their symptoms of MS uh, at the beginning, at three months, and six months. And what they found, the first finding was that participants had less body fat after six months, which is no surprise. You go from burning carbs to burning fat. So that's no, no surprise there. But even more importantly is that there was a decline in fatigue and depression scores. So if you know anybody with MS, one of the biggest, most common sy symptoms is fatigue. And that's a lot of uh, what is trying to be improved through medications and, and diet changes uh, with MS. And so they, they found that that was improved. They did a quality of life survey, again, at the beginning, middle, and end, asking them like, did you feel worn out? Uh, you know, have you been a happy person? Have you felt downhearted? The survey, the quality of life survey looks at physical and mental health. Those scores can range from zero, zero to 100. 100 is better. And they found that at the beginning, participants scored on average a 67 at the start of the study. And then at the end of the study, the average score was 79. So pretty good increase in terms of quality of life. 
Um, mental health, average mental health score went from 71 to 82. And then kind of the next la layer of this, they looked at common uh, MS disease progression uh, tests. So they were basically testing for physical disabilities. That was on a scale of zero, zero to 10, 10 being bad, zero being better. At the start, it was 2.3, uh, which essentially meant um, minimal, minimal to moderate disability, but still able to walk. Started at 2.3 in the beginning, and at the end, it was 1.9. So their ability to walk without issue improved. And then I think this is even more interesting. Finally, they took blood samples before and after and found that those participants had improvements in the levels of inflammatory markers in the brain. So uh, this wasn't just, you know, a matter of, um, was it wasn't just a matter of uh, placebo, maybe is what I'm what I'm trying to get at. Like, it's not just that they felt better, there were actually biomarkers that improved over this period of time. Inflammation is one of the biggest things that impacts uh, uh, neurological conditions or, or autoimmune conditions. And so that improved over the period. Now, one big study here, or one big uh, caveat here is there was no control group. So that's a, I mean, that's a big con. But for those that engage in this intervention, which is 54 people, there seemed to be a big improvement with the ketogenic diet. And this is New, there hasn't been a ton of studies around this, but there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence. We've mentioned it on here before, but Terry Walls is somebody that somebody who has MS, and she developed this lifestyle dietary protocol called the Walls Protocol. And her her like most intense level of that or layer of that is Walls Paleo Plus. That's the name of it, and it's basically keto. So the thing about ketosis is that um, your liver produces ketones, which can actually cross the blood brain barrier, unlike long chain fatty acids. And it's basically a more efficient energy source for your brain, which is why it's prescribed for or, or sometimes used for epilepsy, and why we think it's it's helpful for MS. So not everyone should just go ahead and do ketosis. There's some hormonal things that go along with it, especially if you're doing it long term. But there there's definitely some benefits to removing carbs, especially those highly processed carbs. Um, I'm going to try to get actually Katie to maybe go a little more low carb uh, to see how that affects her. Uh, her. She, she really doesn't have any symptoms now, but this is, this is really big. I mean, since we don't have a cure for MS, the more that we can do from a dietary and lifestyle perspective, the, the better. So this is really encouraging to see. Has she experimented previously with any type of low carb stuff? Like, especially when you were doing carnivore, did she kind of like adhere to that at all when you were doing it? Or did she kind of mainly stick to her typical diet? No, she, uh, yeah, she, she loves carbs. She likes, you know, the sweet potatoes. Who doesn't? <laughs> she, I, I know everyone loves carbs. Uh, no, she has not tried it. Um, but the carbs she does eat now are mainly from fruits and veggies, right? Yeah. Some grains. She'll sometimes do like a sprouted bread or a sourdough bread or like gluten-free oats, but she doesn't mm -hmm. have a lot of like highly processed carbs. So we'll yeah. see if, I, if we can get her to do this and see how, how it helps. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be interested to see if adapting to a little bit more carnivore, carnivore-ish style or yeah, keto-ish would be, uh, see how that would yeah. be interesting. I'm actually, I'm actually thinking about going back carnivore. Really? <laughs> yeah. Full on carnivore or like, would you mix in more fruits than, I would we mix didn't in do any fruits, fruits when we did it. No, we didn't. And I guess that's, that's, that's not carnivore. It's omnivore, but more yeah. like animal based heavy diet. I felt the best on that and like lower, mm -hmm. lower carb. But working in some carbs so that I can actually exercise like a banana mm -hmm. before a workout or 
yeah. berries, you know, working in some stuff like that. But I think that would make it easier. But anyway, yeah, yeah that's getting sidetracked. But I'm, I'm thinking about toying around with that. Nice. All right. Next study here is uh, using mindfulness to reduce opioid misuse and chronic pain. So this is kind of a study looking at types of therapy that people go through. This is um, mindfulness based therapy, which basically it's called uh, mind. The technical name is mindfulness oriented recovery enhancement or more is the acronym. And it basically combines a mix of meditation, uh, CBT, cognitive based therapy, and it says principles from positive psychology into sequence training in mindfulness. Um, the gist of what it is basically throughout this program of, of more therapy, I'll call it that is uh, it kind of lists out what specifically this is, what they get from it. But people who go through this, it says participants are taught to break down the experience of pain or opioid craving into their sensory components zooming in on what they are feeling and breaking it down into different sensations like heat or tingling or tightness. Um, they're also trained to notice how those experiences change over the course of a period of time and to adopt uh, the perspective an, of an, the perspective of an observer. They're taught to savor pleasant and uh, healthful life affirming experiences, amplifying the sense of joy uh, and reward and meaning and kind of just take away those positive events of the everyday life. Um, and finally, participants are taught to reframe stressful events to find a sense of meaning in the face of adversity. So that's kind of a gist of it. It's a, a more, I guess, holistic uh, perspective and kind of a holistic way to approach therapy. So basically what they did, they took 20, uh, 250 adults who were experiencing chronic pain and on long-term opioids. So most of these people were using oxy, um, as like a, a long-term, um, way to manage their, their chronic pain. Um, so most, most participants took oxy, they reported two or more painful conditions, and they also met the clinical criteria for uh, major depression. And it said that more than half of the participants had diagnosable opioid use disorder, which is not surprising when you're on these, when, when you're on these opioids for for long term. So the of the 250 adults, uh, participants were randomly assigned to either a standard supportive psychotherapy group or a more group, which is what we just described what that is. So they were in one of the two groups and it was a eight week program. So they had a weekly session for two hours a week for eight weeks. And they also were assigned 15 minutes of, of daily exercises at home or daily homework. Um, and research measured researchers measured participants, opioid misuse behaviors, symptoms of pain, depression, anxiety, stress, all that. They kind of measured that at after a nine month follow up. So they did this eight week program. Nine months later, they followed up asking about their symptoms, their 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 use of opioids, depression, anxiety, et cetera. And after nine months, 45% uh, of the participants in the more group were no longer misusing opioids. 36% had cut their opioid use in half or greater. And overall, patients in the more group had more than twice the odds of those compared in the standard psychotherapy to stop misusing opioids. 
Um, it says additionally, participants in the Moore group reported clinically significantly improved uh, improvements in chronic pain symptoms, uh, a decreased craving in opioids, and reduced symptoms of depression. Um, depression to levels as low as to or to the point where it was no longer considered a major depressive disorder. So those are those are pretty big numbers. I mean, almost half the people who were misusing opioids stopped. Um, and the odds of going this through this program, the more therapy had twice the, I guess, effectiveness or twice the odds of improving your outcome compared to just typical psychotherapy. So it's interesting that the the control group was psychotherapy mm-hmm. compared to nothing. Like the, the there are forty five percent of participants in the more group were no longer misusing opioids. I bet that's even greater when you compare it to a group that does nothing. Like definitely, I, I imagine yeah. that there's not a lot of people. I mean, I don't know, trying to get you know psychotherapy for uh, opioid misuse, but mm-hmm. and I imagine that that has some level of efficacy to it. So if you compare this more uh, this mind, what is it called? Um, mindfulness oriented recovery enhancement. I imagine if you compare that to people doing nothing, it's even greater. Yeah. 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 It's really, really astounding outcomes. And I mean, with the numbers, I think we hit the record overdose deaths, um, I, in 2021 or 2020 was kind of the highest we've ever seen. It got into over a hundred thousand deaths, um, which is quite a staggering number. So I mean, this is a, a great place to where we could be investing in our uh, in our people and, and putting money towards programs like this that are practicing these kind of scientific backed programs that show to be there seem to be very effective. Yeah, I think this is really important. And I, I think people are waking up to it. But opioid addiction doesn't look like, you know, a fentanyl addict living on a car- cardboard box mm-hmm. in Philly. Like, yeah, that's part of it. But there are like opioid addicts all over the place from like normal people who just mm-hmm. had a, a, sur- a botched surgery or, you know, maybe a, um, a chronic condition. Like there, there's so much more to opioid addiction than what is portrayed, you yeah. know, in, uh, I don't know, the media and in movies and TV, like go watch the movie, go watch the show dope sick on Hulu. That gives you a, a good perspective on it's just like normal people that mm-hmm. um, got caught but- up with, with opioids. Yeah, not, they're not looking for, you know, they, they didn't go out seeking drugs. They just got prescribed this because of their pain um, and the pain just doesn't go away, whether there's a complication or their body just can't seem to heal and they just kind of they get stuck on it and the dosage keeps increasing and they keep feeling worse and worse and it's just a, a downward spiral. So, yeah, it's encouraging to see results like this. Yeah. Okay, so shifting gears to uh, another story, more more of a, a lifestyle uh, health impact around cleaning products. So people just, I feel like when they buy a cleaning product, they'd really just take whatever is going to get the job done. The more natural cleaning products are kind of downplayed a little bit. And I understand, like maybe they don't seem like they work as well and they don't necessarily smell as good and that's kind of part of the problem with these cleaning products so scented surface cleaning products actually expose us expose the user to some pretty harmful uh, pollutant particles and there's this article that came out showing that those pollutant particles breathing those is similar to like standing on the side of a highway and breathing the fumes from cars Hmm. and how they kind of got to that is 
they took a, it was a, a group of researchers. They were in an office room for 15 minutes, a, a mop soaked in uh, the scented commercial cleaning product and were, were measuring the air quality. And, you know, what they found is that there's something called secondary organic aerosols, SOAs that linger in the air. Um, and these are in things like citrus or pine scented uh, fragrance fragrances from cleaning particles. So those fragrant chemicals, they're called uh, monoterpenes, and they're in a lot of cleaning products that make it smell good. But what they do is they easily, they're very easily evaporated into the air, and then they react with uh, unstable molecules uh, in the air, like ozone, O3. And that combination produces these particles called secondary organic aerosols or SOAs, and they're also generated by vehicle fumes, and they can really irritate your airways. Like the longer you're there, there's a dependent, a time dependent um, impact on lung irritation. And uh, and the smaller those particles are, the deeper they can go into your lung, cause respiratory problems like in inflammation, get into your bloodstream. And what this research found is that even just exposure to to a room, like uh, what it would normally take to like clean a clean a room, even if you're like 15 minutes or I, no, here's what they did. They did 15 minutes and then they they did it for like an hour and a half and they found this basically time dependent uh, exposure to to SOAs. So the, the longer they sat in the room with this mop, the more SOAs there were in the air and that, that you're breathing in. And you know, a lot of associations between uh, people that are exposed to these and like lung problems, uh, even cancer, you hear stories about uh, like cleaning, like hotel uh cleaning staff and how many respiratory problems they have down the road. And this is what is thought to be a major cause of that. So if you are going to use uh, cleaning products, try to avoid ones with like strong fragrances or your um, like your typical, I'm, tr I'm trying to even think of like brands, like Pine Sol is one that probably has significant monoterpenes in it. Um, I don't know. What are, what are some like other standards? Windex or something, Pledge. We, yeah, Windex, Pledge, all, all that kind of 409, like all mm -hmm. this stuff is just they're filled with these chemicals that like you you do breathe in. Like you don't have to necessarily be down close to the surface where you're spraying. Like they it gets into the room and, and it evaporates very easily. And then you breathe that in over an extended period of time that can cause problems in your lungs. So there are natural options out there. Um you just have to, uh, you know, put a little more elbow grease into it. You just need to work a little harder <laughs> if you're going to use those. Like, honestly, one of the best, the cleanest products is just like water and vinegar or, or, mm -hmm. um, or alcohol. Baking or soda. I just, I just, oh, yeah. little hack for people out there. Those spots on your, on your stove that mm -hmm. come from like spilling soup or spilling hot grease or whatever on the thing. And it just creates this little circle, this stain that you feel like you can't get off. I tried it with 409 and all the... The cleaner, I had this degreaser. I let it sit there for a while. Nothing. I could not get it off. I put water and baking soda mm. and I made this paste. So I got it really thick, sat it on there and just this clump. And then I put a hot rag over it. And so I let it sit there for 15 minutes, came back, wiped it off, gone. There you go. Completely nice. gone. No harmful chemicals. I wasn't breathing any fragrances, just baking soda and water and it completely cleaned it up. So there are options out there. Just got to be a little more patient with it, but it's better than breathing this in, you know, day after day and, uh, you know, messing up your lungs. What do you, do you have like a, a eco-friendly or just a clean cleaners that, that you, like a household cleaner that you guys use that you can vouch for? 
Yeah. Um, let me see if I can find it. I know we're using, and I have not researched this. It's something uh, Mariah had got. It's like a reusable thing. So it's more for just like, I guess, preventing waste, but it's Blue Land. I think they're probably big on Instagram. Okay. It's you buy re refillable uh, pods. No idea if it's clean. I, I think they claim to be very health friendly. It doesn't work great. So I'm kind of assuming it doesn't have car <laughs> harsh chemicals in it. So it's probably good. Yeah. It's probably good. I don't know. Um, but no, yeah, just just vinegar and like you know, rubbing alcohol can be good too. And vinegar are just two like two single ingredient things that uh, really go a long way. Yeah, yeah. I I will put. We have one that we use. It's a we use it like for hand soap, for dish soap. I'll put it in the show notes because I can't think of the name right now. But it's uh, it's, it's very clean and it and it works pretty good. So yeah. Okay. All right, uh, let's move on to the uh, last kind of main story of the week here. And that is a uh, potential new uh, drug treatment. So it's sort of a treatment, but it's more of a new way to administer the, the treatment itself. So this is uh, this is at Rice University. Bioengineers were su successfully able to eradicate ovarian and colorectal cancer in mice. Um, they were able to do this in as little as two weeks using something called, they, they call this a, a drug factory is kind of the, the, the catchy name for it. And basically what it is, the, the drug factory, it's, it's a way to administer the drug. It's a one-time implantable bead. Um, you can see this, we can put a link in the show notes to kind of the article, but it's these little beads. It looks like the, like a, a, the head of a needle. So it's really small. Um, it's an implantable bead that basically continues continuously creates and administers high doses of interleukin-2, which interleukin-2 is a cytokine, a protein that the immune system uses to recognize and fight diseases. It is FDA approved as a cancer treatment right now. Um, so it is being used. This is just a different way to administer it, um, a, a very targeted way to administer it. So basically they, they put these beads in these mice near where they had tumors, um, both ovarian and colorectal tumors. They put the bead near the tumor and, um, within, within weeks they were able to, to treat these mice and to eradicate the, the cancer. I believe for the ovarian, it was a hundred percent effective with those. And for the colorectal, I believe seven of the eight trials were effective. So in mice, it, it was shown to be, to be very effective. And the reason they're doing this, the reason they create it to be this way is because uh, with ovar ovarian cancer specifically and other types of cancer, like it's hard to to really target where you're putting the medicine. A lot of times um, you just kind of, I guess, like nuke the whole body in a sense um, and it causes harm everywhere other than just the one place. And like you're not getting all of those cytokines to the the specific tumor where, where the cancer is, is mainly uh, at. So the purpose of creating these beads is to be able to target the treatment and to put these beads specifically where the uh, where the tumor is to increase the likelihood of the, uh, the the white blood cells there to get activated and start fighting the cancer cells. So it doesn't have to travel through the body to get there first. You just put it right where it needs to be, and you can kind of mess with the do the dosaging here. So if you need this to produce the medicine for like 15 days or 30 days or 45 days, however long you, you can program these beads or put a, a certain number of beads in there to kind of last as long as you want it to. So um, it was really interesting to see, like, I mean, 
essentially 100% effective in these mice in these trials. So uh, again, this is not a new drug. It's just a new way of administering the drug. And they're going to try to start, they said human trials in uh, later in 2022. So they will start doing human trials shortly here. So we'll, uh, we'll see what, what happens here. We'll keep an eye on it and keep you guys updated. Yeah, that's that's cool to see how uh, alternative treatments or methods of delivering alternative treatments are progressing. I mean, chemo and uh, radiation, right? It sucks. Uh, normal, yeah, traditional yeah. cancer treatment. I don't know what this, the efficacy of this versus something like chemo, but uh, you know, I, I really do hope that that medicine can continue to evolve. You know, the, the tinfoil hat part of me says we'll never cure cancer because it's such a huge moneymaker. It's such a huge industry. But you see things like this and, and you see that there are people really trying to advance mm-hmm. science in that area. So I, I'm hopeful. All right. Uh, another interesting story this week that we uh, we came across. Uh, I think everyone knows uh, Harvey Weinstein. Uh, he's in jail and he was recently caught with a contraband uh, element in November, prompting a reprimand from L.A. County jail guards, according to records. Uh, viewed by Variety, the electrolyte drink, which uh, which contains a thousand milligrams of sodium, two hundred milligrams of potassium, sixty milligrams of magnesium, was found during a search on November tenth. After Weinstein had a face to face meeting with Sean Berkeley, one of his attorneys. Now, the element drink was uh, the element packets were confiscated, and the guards warned that they'd have to search legal binders and laptop bags on future visits. Um, now, Weinstein claimed to the guards that he had brought this electrolyte drink with him, uh, you know, when he was put in jail, but the officials said they searched him and uh, that that was that, that that was not found. So he was he had some sort of contact to smuggle in element and he did apologize. He said this was an innocent misunderstanding, which <laughs> we've heard that before, buddy. Um, <laughs> he said it will not happen again. I have been a model inmate following the rules. I'm sincerely sorry. Like, well. You know, maybe you should have had that kind of apology, uh, you know, after you uh, committed all those crimes. But he said he's very sorry it happened. It won't happen again. The article ends. This is a hilarious way to end the article. Weinstein faces numerous health issues, including diabetes, as well as cardiac issues, sleep apnea, and eye problems. <laughs> and that's probably why he was trying to smuggle element into jail. And I got to be honest, like, I don't, you know, I don't agree with, you know, what a lot of this guy has has done, but you can't, you can't smuggle element in jail. And you know, I think it makes it sound like Element is like really hard to get a hold of, and it's uh, it's a hot commodity, which it is. But if you want to get it, don't don't try to smuggle it. Don't go through, you know, the black market. Just go to drinkelementd.com/slash/healthact. You can get a sample pack if you want. You can buy a month supply, a three or four month supply. Drinkelementd.com/slash/healthact. It's all waiting there for you. Get yours now. All right, that is a wrap on the main headlines of the week. Uh, next, we'll go into our fail of the week. And this is, uh, sorry, it's a, it's a vegetable article talking about kale, some of the potential misconceptions around the the benefits of kale. So you want to break that down for us, Andy? Yeah, I hate, you know, I hate how I feel like this section, I'm either like slamming veggies or I don't have anything against veggies, but like the the claim in this article here was just nonsense. So the name of the article is called uh, The Benefits of Kale in Skincare, According to Experts. So I'm just going to read an excerpt from it. It says, kale is nutrient dense and packed with antioxidants and vitamins like vitamin A, B, C, K, and E. That is true. Nothing wrong there. Surprisingly, one cup of kale has more vitamin C than most citrus fruits. False. Um, And then the kind of one thing they said that really caught my attention, 
is the effects of eating kale, such as hydrating the skin and brightening the complexion, can mirror the result of applying it topically. Don't know where they get that. They don't cite any research to support that. And um, they basically kind of convey in this article that if you eat kale, it has the same impact as applying like vitamin C to your skin topically. And that's just not the case. So a no, couple of important things here. Um, but the few of the vitamins that they mentioned, vitamins A, K, and E are fat soluble. Kale doesn't have any fat in it. So if you're just eating kale or a kale salad with no fat in it, you're not going to absorb any of those vitamins. Also, it's worth mentioning that vitamin A, um, that a conversion has to take place before you can actually absorb the vitamin A. And that conversion um, from beta carotene is, is inefficient in a lot of people. It's kind of a side note. But if you're eating a low-fat salad or just eating kale, you're not going to absorb those, those vitamins. So kind of a misconception there or, or a misrepresentation there. And then vitamin C, now that's water-soluble, so you don't need fats there to absorb that. Um, but they claim that kale contains more vitamin C than most citrus fruits. Now, I went up and I looked at the USDA Food Data Central, which is, I mean, really the, the best source of data that we have for what vitamins and minerals, fats, proteins are contained in certain foods. Raw kale contains, uh, one cup of raw kale contains 19.2 milligrams of vitamin C. One cup of orange contains 97.5 milligrams of vitamin C. And one cup of sliced red peppers contain 118 milligrams of vitamin C. Now, in terms of servings, I'll give it to them. If you were to, like most people in a salad, they're not just going to eat one cup of kale. That's not a lot of kale. They're going to eat three to four cups of kale. So if you took us and, and one cup of orange is basically one orange. So if you did it by serving size, you get a little close, but the whole one cup thing is just completely false. But more, more importantly, there's been some research on dietary vitamin C versus topical vitamin C for skin, and it does not seem to have the same impact. Um, it's hard when you, do, when you consume vitamin C, it's hard to get those nutrients to your top most layer of skin, the epidermis, which is you know, where, what people are trying to improve by um, when, when they, they're, we're talking about skincare. And that's not to say that vitamin C can't have any impact on like your overall health or your skin, but in terms of like applying topically versus nutritionally, it's just, it's different. And it's not gonna, it does not, there's not really research out there that shows that consuming vitamin C has the same impact as applying topically, which is exactly opposite of what they said. I, I have a study in here that looked at this and um, that's exactly, they basically said, if you eat kale, it's the same thing as applying topically. It's just completely false. Also, I think it's really important to note that a lot of people cannot digest kale. My wife, we've tried kale salads before and like she just, it upsets her stomach. And there's a reason for this. Kale contains a sugar that we humans cannot digest. It's called raffinose and it can't be broken down in the stomach and the small intestine where most, most food does. So it goes to the large intestine, it ferments there. And that's why kale makes, you know, people feel gassy and bloated and just terrible. Um, some people don't mind that. Uh, some people might be able to, uh, you know, might feel better after it, but there's a reason that most people. Most people can't digest it properly or, or feel good after digesting it. So not the, and it's so, so many articles, just type in kale skincare and you'll see all these articles pop up talking about how it's a superfood for skincare. It's a skin's, uh, I can't remember what they call it. It's skincare um, superhero or something like that. It's just not, um, not the case when you actually dig into the data. So when you see stuff like this, that sounds too good to be true, look into it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, not again, not, I don't 
not saying don't eat any vegetables, just this right here, what they're saying by eating kale, you're going to have like the best skin ever. It's just false. And I'm sure people on, on TikTok had a field day with this article and we're just like, you know, you know how they are in there. All the different oh, it, hacks, oh, I know, dude. skincare hacks. So I went to hashtag nutrition because sometimes when I'm like trying to find, you know, not so fast, I'm like what's going on out there this week? And mm-hmm. it's just so much, <laughs> it's just so much garbage out there, man. It's like I, unreal. Are you on take? Do you, do you have like the app? Are you on it? Well, I just downloaded it like last week um, <laughs> because I was going to try to post some of our clips and I did post one of our clips there and we got like seven likes. Nice. Nice. And we got like 250 <laughs> views. So there we go. Uh, no, but I, I don't go on TikTok. No, I, I downloaded it once for a week and then I'm like, I'm never getting this app back again. It's, it's a dumpster fire. Yeah, it really is. All right, that is a wrap on the uh, the main stories of this week. We're going to move into our weekly plug. Um, I'll start off here. I'm actually going to divert from the weekly plug a little bit and have a little personal life update announcement. Um, similar one Andy had a couple months ago. So my wife, Mariah and I are expecting our first little baby. Um, end of July is when we are expecting, um, thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, I already know. I, this is not him telling me. I already know. I'm so pumped for him. Uh, gender is TBD. We'll find out actually in like three days. We'll do the, uh, 20 week ultrasound and find out there. So very excited for that. Um, so yeah, I, I'll probably end of July be out for a week or two. So Andy will kind of take the reins full time for a little bit. Um, but yeah, very excited and no, uh, no weekly plug for me, but just, just a life update. That's a big one. That's worth multiple weekly plugs. That is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was super pumped for my little guy to have another cousin, a little, another little yeah. rat baby to the pack, to the rat pack. <laughs> <laughs> Even though we don't, you know, we don't brand ourselves as lab rats. We still got to call, you know. Yeah. Still got to reference the the rat pack. The rat pack. Yeah, it'll be fun. We're, whether it's a, a boy or girl, I think uh, Will's going to have a little friend. So, yeah, so excited. Nice. You guys are going to love it. It's, it's so much fun. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have uh, as exciting of a plug as that, but I read a uh, book this past week. I, th- I might have mentioned it on here. Uh, it's called Ikigai, uh, which is a Japanese concept, meaning uh, like it's like the meaning, finding your purpose. And mm. it's... Uh, it actually goes through like some of the longest living populations, the centenarians, the super centenarians, and it talks about their diet, which some of the diet stuff they, they, they get wrong, but they talk a lot about community and how that is like one of the biggest factors for longevity. Um, they talk about how important it is to have a purpose in life that impacts longevity. It's very thorough book in terms of like covering all these areas of your life to, to find f- true fulfillment and meaning. And this concept mentioned on here a few weeks ago, it's like finding what you're passionate about, like what you enjoy doing, what you're good at, um, what the world needs and what the world will pay you for. When the, the middle, the, the four, when those four things combine, that's Ikigai. And mm-hmm. it's it's trying to help people find that area of their life. All those, those four areas combined and that offers true fulfillment, which is going to really help with uh, life, like longevity. You know, it's going to help you live longer. So it is, there is some uh, spiritual components to the book. So maybe everyone, every piece of the book might not resonate with you is what I'm trying to say. But it's uh, got, it's very short read. Got a lot of good things to think about. So check it out. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to read that one. Sounds, sounds like a good read. All right. That is a wrap for this week. Uh, hope you guys 
have a good week. Don't read too much of the news. Um, try to find some peace. Um, there's balance in, in reading the news and, and staying away from the news. So hope you guys have a good week. Uh, and we'll be back again next week with a, another update on the latest health news.